Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in details about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Well, hey, several years ago, a fellow by the name of John, true story, goes into his bank. <clears throat> he has an appointment with one of the bank officers, and he gets there. He goes to the teller to tell him he's, she's, you know, he's there for the appointment. She says, I'm sorry. He just called. He got delayed. He's not going to be able to make the appointment. Can you reschedule? This is before cell phones and all that, of course. And so he says, okay, yeah, I understand. And uh, that's no problem. And then he pulls out, some of you will remember this, he pulls out a parking garage ticket and says, can you validate my parking? To which the teller said, no, I'm sorry. I can't validate your parking. We only validate parking tickets of those who actually you know, do a transaction or do business with the bank. And he says, well, yeah, but I was here to do business with the bank. It was your guy's fault. He canceled, not me. So I think I should have my ticket um, validated. And she says, I I'm sorry, I just can't. You know, the rules are the rules, and I can't make an exception because of this unless you do some kind of a transaction or some kind of business with the bank. So John thought about it for a minute, and he says, okay. He said, I'd like to have the documents that will allow me to close out my account, <laughs> which he did, and then the teller validated his parking ticket. Of course, when the guy got there later, he was extremely upset, the, the, the bank guy, because John was John Akers. He was the CEO of IBM. <laughs> Needless to say, he got his ticket validated, the bank took a huge loss, and the teller lost her job. Okay. You know, we, uh, we've all experienced the insanity of legalism in different areas of our lives. That teller was being legalistic about the rules of the bank. Nobody would want to lose IBM's business because over a ticket not being validated. But, but we come across legalists all the time. There are political leader, legalists who believe and will decree that you are not patriotic unless you vote a certain way. There are cultural legalists who will brand you as being narrow-minded and intolerant if you do not adhere and believe and agree with their progressive agenda. Um, there's, uh, oh, we've all had this, uh, if you've worked in the corporate world at all or in a business office sense, there is that, you know, career corporate legalist, that one person in the office who just makes your life and everybody else's life more difficult because of how persnickety they are. We've all had experience with legalists. Everybody who's been through high school had that one teacher who affected all of your high school memories, right, because of how 
badly she was a legalist. I mean, what is it about English teachers? That's what I don't want to know. <laughs> not math teachers, not math teachers, no. It's English teachers, you know? What is it about that? You know, oh, oh, I've gone from preaching to meddling. Anyway, <laughs> you know, the danger here, of course, is the most dangerous kind of legalist is the religious legalist, the spiritual legalist, the one who will absolutely um, hijack your spiritual journey, will sabotage your, uh, the, the peace and the joy that we can have in Jesus Christ. And now, that word legalist um, gets thrown around loosely. Uh, you know, and people are branded a legalist when they aren't a legalist. Let me just say what a legalist is not. A legalist is not a person who seeks to obey God's word for the right reasons, with the right motives, trusting in Christ's power and not in their own power. So just because someone obeys the word of God, that doesn't make him a legalist. If they're obeying God with the right motive, the right purpose, trusting in Christ, not themselves, that's not legalism. That's biblical obedience. A legalist is something very different. Let me give you some definitions from some very uh, intelligent fellas. First, from R. Kent Hughes. He finds legalism like this. It's anything that suggests we can earn salvation, achieve or add to our own righteousness, or by accomplishing something, gain increased favor with God. W.A. Criswell defines it as an insistence upon the observation of human regulations as if one's fellowship with God were dependent upon that observation. And then finally from, from J.E. Clem, the belief that one's acceptance by God, some of you got it, uh, <laughs> and the experience of his blessings is determined by obedience to unbiblical or extra-biblical rules and regulations. This is what legalism is. And it's a constant threat to the life of a Christian, to the life of a church, to the institutions that we cherish most deeply. Our church, our families, our homes, legalism is a very real, dangerous reality. And you see this in this passage this morning. This morning here, at the, as we come to the end of chapter 2, Paul is bringing this entire argument against these false teachers to a, to a head from a doctrinal pers perspective. And the rest of the book, as we move to chapter 3 next week, he begins to apply all this in the various areas of our lives, like our homes and in our workforce and, and different things like this. But this morning, we're going to kind of marinate in what Paul has to say about legalism and its threat to us as Christians and even to our church. <laughs> three, couple, three easy points this morning. We're going to look at the, the characteristics of legalism, the, uh, the causes of legalism, and then the cure for legalism. So for those of you who like alliteration, I just made your day, okay? Let's start with the characteristics of legalism. There are, in this passage, as you look at the verses, I think you can identify five characteristics. That doesn't mean there's only five. So for example, proof texting. A legalist proof text like there's no tomorrow. That's not actually in this passage, so I'm not bringing it out. But there's other characteristics than just these five, but these five are truly enough. The very first one, legalism majors on the minors and the letter of the law instead of Christ and the spirit of the law. Verse 16 says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. Literally, let no one condemn you or evaluate you negatively. Let no one tell you what you must do in questions of food and drink 
or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, these are shadows of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The very wording in verse 16 kind of gives us some insight as to at least one of the false teachers or one of the, the ideas that were being brought to the Colossian church. That idea of your, your food and drink, your Sabbath, your festivals, new moons and festivals, this is wording straight out of the Old Testament. You'll see those things in several different passages in the Old Testament. Apparently, much like the Judaizers did in the Galatian church, where they said, in order for you to be a, a mature Christian who honors God, believe in Jesus and make sure that you circumcise your children and you observe the dietary laws. Well, that similar idea has been incorporated, at least in part, with this philosophy and this false teaching that's being brought to the Colossians. <clears throat> the Pharisees were excellent at this, where they would, they would major on the letter of the law, and they would completely miss the spirit of the law and what the law was all about. The law was all about pointing them to Jesus. All the, the, the dietary laws, the Sabbath, the festivals, all find their fulfillment in Jesus. So here's the Pharisees obsessing over every little detail about the Sabbath and unpacking that and applying it and frankly making people miserable. And they were so focused on the, that aspect of the law that they didn't see that the Lord of the Sabbath was walking right in their midst. They were so focused on the sacrificial system and everything about the law that they missed that the Lamb of God was right there with them. And remember how Paul re replied to that, or excuse me, how Jesus responded to the Pharisees. I mean, his harshest, hardest, most blunt you know, condemnation was reserved for the Pharisees who majored on the minors, who majored on the letter of the law, not the spirit of the law, not on the spirit of Christ. Now, I don't see any of you here this morning dressed like Pharisees. We don't have the class of Pharisees in Presbyterianism, but that doesn't mean we're not immune from Pharisaism. Um, it, can, it can appear in our own church. It just takes different forms. Francis Schaeffer, many years ago, wrote a book, and in there he talked about legalism, and he said, here's how legalism begins, like in a church like, say, ours or other good churches. Let's, let's just imagine for a moment that, all of biblical truth is enumerated from one to a hundred. And in order to be a, a well-balanced, mature believer, that one to a hundred is preached and taught and you absorb it and you, you, know, you, you get the idea, right? Well, what happens is, let's say in a church, you know, items 40 to 50, for whatever reason, don't get emphasized very much. You know, 60 to 100 is their regular, I mean, all the time. And, and 1 through 40 is at least on a regular basis being, but for, for some reason, 40 to 50, there's a deficiency there in the church. And in time, somebody notices that. Maybe it's another pastor who sees it as being a trend in churches. Maybe it's somebody within the church who's studying their Bible and they come across items 40 to 50 and they say, why am I not hearing that from the pulpit? Why am I not hearing this in our church? And they begin to teach it in their small group and they begin to emphasize it and they want to teach a Sunday school class on it. And pretty soon they have a group of people coming over regularly building little palm frond huts in their backyard to observe the, the tabern Feast of the Tabernacles. That actually happened in our church at way, way, like long time ago, right? I mean, that's how it occurs. And, and so Francis Schaeffer says, what happens, 
Ironically, is because of that overemphasis on items 40 to 50, it becomes very legalistic. And what does the church do in response to that overreaction? They go even farther away from items 40 to 50, which creates a perpetual issue within the church. And so it can happen anywhere. I've seen it. I grew up with it. I mean, I grew up with this emphasis of items 40 to 50, and in, apparently 40 to 50 was all about tithing because there was never a sermon that tithing somehow did not make its way into the message. I, I mean, I grew up just convinced that, you know, if you wanted to pass go and go straight through the pearly gates, all you needed to do is come to church on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and tithe. If you did that, you're in like Flint. I mean, that's the way it works. And so, and we can do the same thing. Uh, we, can, we can so stress, for example, the sovereignty of God, which is a wonderful doctrine, and we, we continue to go there, but we ignore, oh, you know, like the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's not happened in Presbyterian churches ever, has it? <laughs> it has. A second characteristic, um, spiritual directives based upon mystical and unverifiable spiritual knowledge. Verse 18, the first half says, let no one disqualify you. Let no one cheat you of your prize. Let no one judge you not worthy of the reward. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels going on in detail about visions. Legalism always includes, it seems, directives focused on curtailing our freedom in Christ. There are, uh, there's always adamant directives and how often it seems to revolve around the topic of worship and spiritual growth. Here's how you worship God. And this is the idea here. It wasn't necessarily that they were worshiping angels, but he'd had a vision that this is how the angels worship God. Therefore, this is how you must worship God. If you want to be worshiping God, the way the scriptures and God requires it, demands it. And we have variations of this today. And it may not because, be because of a vision of, of the heavens, but it's certainly a vision of how to interpret these particular verses as it relates to worship. And so oftentimes you see adamant directives about worship and spiritual growth that enslave others. Thirdly, third characteristic is fleshly, self-centered pride, often accompanied by an attitude of superiority. This one especially, I, was, I grew up with, this, that air of superiority. In verse 18, the second half says, Let no one disqualify you. The second half, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. In his heart, the legalist is inevitably filled with overabundant amount of pride and self-righteousness and self-sufficiency. Without fail. Fourth characteristic, you see in verses 20 to 22, human traditions, rules, and philosophies are functionally equal to Scripture. You remember, uh, actually, a couple of weeks ago, I told you that Paul, in all of his letters, but especially this one, he'll say something, he'll go along, and then he'll come back around to it again, and he'll go along, and he'll come back around to it again. That's what's happening with this one. We've run into this one already back in verse 8 when he said, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit 
according to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Remember the idea of, of spiritual pirates who will carry you off in this way because of traditions and rules and, and philosophies that are man-made. And now he comes back to it at the end of verse 20 and 21 and 22. Why do you submit to regulations, and here he's quoting the actual, at least one of the false teachers, he's quoting him here, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. Why do you let anyone submit, make you submit to regulations that are nothing more than human precepts and teachings? Man, I, could, I, think, I think all of us could give examples of this. Within churches, it, it, will, it will manifest itself in so many different ways. For example, I remember I had a pastor friend who took over a, a church. It was a, a very successful church, and he was a phenomenal pastor. He left a very successful church, believing God wanted him to come here and to this other church. He got there the very first Sunday. He goes and he preaches, and you know, but after the service, a group of people, cornered him and they just wore him out they chewed him up one side and down the other because he stood up there in the pulpit in a suit with a dress shirt and no tie you'd have thought that he had you know sacrificed a goat behind the altar or something you know i mean you know blaspheme jesus because he didn't wear a tie in the house of God, okay? I mean, that's just one example. I mean, don't even get me started on the reasons why churches have worship wars and how often worship wars are nothing more than beliefs that are rooted in human traditions and rules and philosophies that are made functionally equal to Scripture. See, the legalist never says, what I believe is what I believe because mama and daddy believe this or because this is always... No, they always justify it by appealing to Scripture. And that's where the, kind of the, the distortion of Scripture comes into play because you can make the Scripture say anything you want it to say, especially when you're majoring on the minors and not majoring on the majors of Scripture. That's how it happens. But by the way, it often also happens in our families. How many of us, we raised our children because this is the way mom and dad raised us? Or we, we, we have a parenting philosophy, a marriage philosophy that comes because it was just passed down to us, and yet it may not be in alignment with Scripture. How many of us have listened to outside voices? Before the internet, we were going to the self-help section of the bookstore. And now with the internet, they give it to you in one-minute clips. Parents telling you how to raise your children, and yet Christians will listen to those philosophies and traditions that are made up by humans rather than what the scriptures say. And you're even listening to people who are Christians, but you can make anything you believe sound scriptural if you just tweak here and tweak there. And so this is what 
happens. And this is how you become a legalist. Do you, do you realize, parents, that you can become a legalistic parent simply because you are listening to someone who speaks well and, and it seems reasonable and common sense, and, and you follow that counsel and that advice, you adopt that philosophy, but that philosophy is originating from a human being, not from the divinely inspired word of God. And when you do that, you're making a critical mistake, and you yourself are becoming legalistic in doing that. A final characteristic. One's spirituality is based upon spiritual activity and compliance to the rules. Verse 23 says, all of these regulations and rules, do not touch, do not eat, do not whatever, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This verse right here, it's you ought to underline no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Do you, know, do you know what Paul is saying here? He's saying that when you go down this route and you adopt these rules, this philosophy, at first it actually seems like, oh, man, this is good, this is working. But what you are actually doing is you are planting seeds in your heart that are going to erupt into a harvest of self-righteousness and pride and superiority. And that's going to take root in your heart and bring about a harvest. And here's the, here's the greatest of ironies when it comes to legalists, especially when you're, 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 you're rigid and you're curtailing and this and that. I'm about to follow these rules to do this. Here's what ends up happening. At the end of the day, you buckle under the pressure of it all. Or out of that arrogance, you end up committing the very same sins that you judge so strongly. Think of it like this. We have the parable of Jesus where you have the older brother and the younger brother. The younger brother, he's, he's what we would call a libertine, antinomian. He's just lived doing whatever I want, sinning, you know, going to town. The older brother, he's the legalist. And you look at that story, the legalist's heart is filled with pride and arrogance and self-righteousness and judgment. And what happens inevitably is that the older brother will do many of the same activities as the younger brother, but justify it because of his spiritual pride and arrogance. At least the prodigal knows what he's doing is sinful. Instead of justifying, says, oh Lord, help, I'm in a mess. So this aspect, as Max Lucado writes, legalism has no pity on people. Legalism makes my opinion your burden, makes my opinion your boundary, makes my opinion your obligation. And at its core, legalism says we can merit God's favor. We can earn his blessing. We can earn his delight. And when a person believes this, you will see one or more of these characteristics of legalism begin to come to the surface of their lives. But that still creates a question. Why does that happen? What is the cause of legalism? And we see this in verse 19. This is like the hinge verse of the entire chapter 19 and, and 20. And not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. 
Legalism is dangerous to both the, the natural man who has yet to believe in Jesus and to the sincere believers. It enables us to compartmentalize our lives, our spiritual life from our physical life. It, it gives us shortcuts to spirituality, provides us with checklists. It's, it's actually, legalism is actually easier in some respects because it's very concrete with its list of do's and don'ts. And if I do this and don't do that, I'm good with God. And, and listen, you, a lot of, especially those of you who are a little more self-disciplined by nature, man, you, you're going to love that, okay? And those of us who aren't, well, we're going to buy in and we're going to white knuckle it the whole way through trying to abide by these standards. But, but it's measurable, it's observable, it's concrete. Oh, you mean I'm good with God if I just come to church and tithe? Fantastic. That's it. Then I can go about my life. I mean, that's, that's obtainable. And frankly, legalism does work in the short term. There are short-term gains to legalism, kind of like your short-term gains and all those fad diets we buy into, right? That's what legalism is. It is a spiritual uh, fad diet. I just coined that. I'm going to write that down. That's good. It is a great analogy. It is, isn't it? I agree. I agree. But the most dangerous aspect of legalism is how it reverses the gospel message And that reversal of the gospel message is incredibly tempting to our sin nature, regardless if we're a believer or an unbeliever. Legalism appeals to our pride and that great inner desire to be our own savior or to at least get some of the credit, at least a little bit of the credit for our salvation or for, if you're a Christian, just to get a little bit of credit for the fact that I'm growing and I'm more mature than that person. And that's what legalism encourages. The legalist reverses the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Legalism legalism wants us to believe that our relationship with external things is what determines our relationship with God. But Jesus teaches us that it is our relationship with him that determines our relationship with with God, which in turn shapes our relationship with all the external things. Legalism reverses that. So for the unbeliever, the cause of his or her legalism is the belief that Jesus alone is not enough, not quite enough for their salvation. He or she must relate to the external world in a certain manner, obeying certain rules and regulations, believing certain things in order to merit salvation and to earn it. For the believer, the cause of legalism is the belief that Jesus alone is not enough for their sanctification. We must relate to the external world in a certain way, obeying certain rules in addition to Jesus in order to grow more mature in our spiritual walk, please God, so that we in turn can be blessed. The legalist, whether it's believer or unbeliever, reverses the gospel. And that's what's most dangerous about it. Because in the gospel, Jesus tells us that it is only an internal change of our hearts that brings about true external change in our actions so that they become something that honors and glorifies God. That's the order. It's internal first brought about by Jesus. 
and depend, humble dependence upon him alone to do that sanctifying work in our hearts so that in turn, we can honor God and glorify him with our conduct because we're doing it out of Jesus's power for God's glory, for the love of our fellow man and for those who need Jesus. And that alone is our motivation. It's only Jesus working inside of us that can change our motives so that our good behavior and our good conduct is actually something that glorifies God. Do you get that? You can do the right thing, folks, and it be sin. Did you catch that? In other words, I can, I can obey the command. I, I can not steal. But the reason why I don't steal is because I don't want to get caught. Okay, I can do the right thing, but I'm doing it for the wrong reasons, and that is not glorifying to God. I can, you know, I can be faithful to my wife, which is a good thing. Amen? But if I'm doing it because, well, I'm afraid that if I don't, then I couldn't be your pastor anymore. Well, that's the wrong reason. You see, our motivations, man looks at the outward appearance, God looks where? The heart. And so our behavior, this is why the behavior, parents, this is why the behavior of your children is so important. Why are they obeying you? And if you have well-behaved children simply because they know their hiney is going to get torn up and therefore you have controlled their behavior, congratulations, you've created a Pharisee. Okay? So the inner part is where it starts. It's only Jesus working inside of our hearts, changing us so that we can love the person that we serve, the oppressed in our community who need mercy and justice. Legalism, it's dangerous, church. It's dangerous for unbelievers. It's dangerous for sincere believers, morally upstanding people. It's dangerous it's a dangerous temptation because it destroys us and enslaves us. It's a temptation that's hard to resist because it delivers results. It delivers a semblance of what it's desired, but that, but that delivery is it's temporary. Ultimately, what happens is that legalism will either crush your soul or it will create an insufferable hypocrite filled with copious amounts of pride and self-satisfaction and self-righteousness and self-assurance. Ultimately, what happens is that legalism takes us back into the slavery from which Jesus actually delivered us. And why does that happen in our lives? Because we look to something else or someone else other than Jesus to fill us, to make us feel complete, and satisfied. We read the verses earlier where Jesus said, I've come to give you life and to give it to you more abundantly. The reason why legalism is so dangerous is we become convinced that we must look to something or someone other than Jesus, or for most of us, in addition to 
Jesus to have that abundant life. And that's exactly what was happening with the Colossians. This is why it's so, so common, so dangerous, why Paul is preaching is that we're susceptible to this also, to believe that our life is not fully in Jesus Christ, but it's Jesus plus something else. It happens because we are disconnected from the one true head, the source of our true salvation and our sanctification. It happens because we turn from Jesus to Jesus plus something else or simply something else. And I know this is how, how dangerous this is. I know how easy it is to fall into this trap because when I think about this cause and I examine my own life, I am so convicted. Some of you are recovering alcoholics. Some of you are recovering drug addicts or whatever. I'm a recovering legalist. And I look at my life, and uh, by the way, I'm a, I'm a covering legalist who unfortunately hasn't got his nine-year chip <laughs> because I fall off the wagon. It's so easy with legalism. How easy I find it to add to Christ alone in any number of ways. And I'm afraid that for most of us, when we pause and we do deep inner reflection, we see there resides an inner legalist. So what's the cure to legalism? Verse 20. Verse 20 says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? In one short sentence, our fullest life is in This is the cure. Understanding, realizing, believing, embracing, our fullest life is in Christ. It is not legalistic religion. It is not man-made traditions. It is not human-created rules and regulations and the extrapolation of the Word of God that is now abiding by the letter but not the Spirit. It's none of that. It is Christ alone, period, full stop. That's it. There it is. It's, it's actually found, according to this verse, and what we discussed and taught about a couple of weeks ago when we took the Lord's Supper. Because this verse, verse 20, is taking us right back to, to the previous verses, 8 to, 8 to 15, where we talked about our vital union with Jesus Christ. We have, why? You have died with Christ. You've died, you've been buried, you've been risen in Christ. This is where your life now is. And that is the cure for legalism, we find that cure, we find that power to fight the temptation of legalism through that vital union with Christ. So let me close. I opened with a definition of legalism from Kent Hughes. Let me close with a final quote when he says on this topic, the answer to legalism is the continual realization of the grace of Christ. How freeing is it to think I don't have to work for acceptance with God because Jesus already did the work. I don't have to perfectly obey all of these rules to be accepted and to be blessed by God. I'm not going to be blessed better on Monday because I was a better boy on Sunday. None of that is true. 
because Jesus has already done it for us. And we are in Christ. And so when God looks at us, I'm so glad he doesn't see a recovering legalist. He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He doesn't see the guy who has ups and downs and failures and successes. He doesn't see that. He sees Jesus because we're united to him. And that's the source of our life. The answer to legalism is, to, by the way, all of that Kent Hughes didn't say. That was me adding to Kent. I was just making his part better is what I was doing. <laughs> no. That's what a legalist would say. <laughs> uh, the answer to legalism is the continual realization of the grace of Christ. The answer to mysticism in legalism is an understanding of how profoundly we are related to Christ. The answer to asceticism within legalism is the reckoning that we have died been buried and are resurrected with Christ. The answer to legalism is where it all began, at the foot of the cross. So if you are an unbeliever who's not yet been freed from legalism and you're trying to earn your way to heaven, I got good news for you. You can stop. You can just trust in Jesus Christ. He's done the work for you. And for those of us who are believers, let us turn back draw from the head the nourishment we need for our spiritual life. Lord Jesus, thank you for loving us even when we are legalistic. I pray, Father, that you will help us as a church to always hold up the banner of the gospel, the beauty of your grace, Heavenly Father, that comes to us through Christ, the good news that we don't have to be good enough in order to go to heaven or to have an abundant life here on earth and for all of eternity. We don't have to be good enough because you, Jesus, are good enough. So I would pray for the one who's not yet united to you. May they turn to you in faith and trust in you even this morning. May they call out to you and ask for the forgiveness of their sins and commit their lives to you. And fathers, for those of us who are already believers, may you help us in our sanctification to trust alone in Jesus and not our own strength. In his name I pray these things. Amen.